hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locust when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. And it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are gracious, and we thank you that you have given us grace upon grace. We thank you for the victory that is ours through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for paying such a great price for our freedom so that we can be reconciled with you, forgiven of our sins. Father, give us ears to hear you this morning. Give us eyes to see your glory and to understand and apply the message. The message of these visions that you gave to your servant Amos. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our mediator, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. In the year 1800, Congress established the Library of Congress. Now it had slow beginnings. In fact, it really didn't take a leap forward until the year 1815 when Thomas Jefferson donated his library to the Library of Congress. At that date, they received 6,487 books from Thomas Jefferson. Just a small little number. But today, in 2012, the Library of Congress has a collection of more than 155 million items, which includes 35 million books. Take just a moment and think about that. 35 million books. 
They have printed materials in 470 language and 120 million additional items in various formats. Now you can only imagine that managing a collection that large is difficult, but a man by the names of James Billington does that. He oversees the Library of Congress. He is the librarian of Congress. When asked about managing such a large amount of information in books, he kind of reflects upon it philosophically. He says, when I work and oversee the collections, he says, I become very aware that our culture, our nation, has an information glut. There's no shortage of information. But then he asks, but have we become any wiser? That's a very good question. Are we applying what we know? Now, it's easy to think of that in terms of our country, but I want to ask us to narrow the scope down this morning. I ask us to remember that Amos is preaching to the people of God. So I ask us, are we applying as the people of God the things that God has revealed to us in His Word? That's a very appropriate question for a follower of Jesus. Because there is a real danger that we will spend time coming to know God without being known by God. A real danger of buying into the information glut so that we are learning about God but not loving God. It's real, real tempting that we would hear teaching about God without thinking about being transformed by God. You see, this issue of application is of the utmost because God does not desire us to simply know facts about Him. His glory comes when we are transformed by what we know about God, when we become more faithful where we become less angry, more forgiving, more focused upon Jesus Christ our Lord. Now God has been speaking through the prophet Amos so that Israel would return to the Lord. Amos has faithfully been calling Israel to turn from their idolatry and to turn back to God, to step out of their comfort and return to a commitment to follow Yahweh. He has called them out of their selfishness into service for Yahweh. And those are the same things he's calling us to. The times may have changed, but the sinful nature of the human heart has remained the same. So in the words of Amos, you and I have been called to worship God rather than any idols. We have been called to seek Christ and not our own comfort. We have been called to serve rather than to be served. But in chapter 7, there's a change that takes place. Up to this point, we have been overhearing the message that Amos speaks to Israel. But now we get to stand with Amos to see a vision, in fact several visions, that Amos receives from God. Now it is no longer Amos that is speaking, but it is God himself speaking to Amos. And he speaks through a series of five visions that he gives to Amos. The first one is recorded in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7. It is a vision of locusts that come to decimate the land. The second vision is in chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. It is a vision of intense heat, fire, a, a drought brought about by a heat wave. 
The third vision is found in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. And it is a vision of God standing beside a wall to check to see if the wall is still standing vertical. The fourth vision is in chapter 8. It is a vision of all things a fruit basket. And the final vision is in chapter 9 of God standing beside the altar. It's been my prayer that God would allow us, as it were, to stand beside Amos to see these visions. To see them through his word. But not just to see them, but to ask the question, Lord, what do we need to learn from these visions? How do we need to be changed because of these visions? And there are three areas that I want us to think about how we need to be transformed and what we can learn about God, about ourselves, and about the gospel. The first vision is recorded in verses 1 through 3. God says, I want you to look, and he says there are locusts that God was forming. He was getting them ready. And he's very specific about the timing of these locusts. In verse 1, he says, it's when the latter growth was beginning to sprout. It was the latter growth, notice the specific timing, after the king's mowings. This is a way of setting up how decimating and devastating this locust plague would be. Israel, the, in, in Israel, the farmers would have two seasons of growth. They would plant early in the spring, and when those crops came up, the king would take those crops as his tax payment. So the very first harvest would go to the king to support the king's palace, to support his lifestyle, to support, if any is left over, the military. But then, after that harvesting for the king, they would plant a second crop. This crop is what they would live on. It's what they would harvest and store away to eat. So you get a feeling for how bad this would be because he says the king has harvested what the king's going to get. And if the locusts come now, that's going to leave the people with nothing. The people will be devastated by famine and have nothing left to eat at all. So Amos sees this. He sees the destruction that could come. And he says, pleading before God, forgive them. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. He's saying, Jacob, they're weak. The people won't live if you do this, God. And as Amos intercedes, it says, the Lord relented. Some of your translations may say, God repented. While it is translating the word literally, repentance carries the idea that God was wrong in some way. That's not what is intended here. To say that God relented is a way of saying God had one set of action in mind, judgment. But when Amos interceded, he went the other way and he said, I'm going to hold on that judgment. I'm not going to do the judgment now. That is God acting in accord with his character. God is acting as God would here. And based upon the intercession of Amos, he says, judgment will not come now. Notice what he says. It shall not be. In other words, I will not destroy with locusts. But then he comes to a second vision. This one is a little more intense. Verse 4 tells us it is a judgment by fire. It's a way of saying intense heat. And notice this heat is so intense. It not only causes the creeks and the rivers to dry up, 
It causes the the springs that are the source of those rivers and creeks to dry up. It says it devoured the great deep and it was eating up the land. So it's this picture where the water is gone and the land is so dry that the grass crunches under your feet. Once again, Amos intercedes. Lord, please cease. Don't do this. Jacob can't live if you do it. And once again in verse 6. God is gracious. He relents. This shall not be. And then there's the third vision. This one is different. The Lord asked Amos a question now. And there's no intercession here. This one is final. God is standing beside a wall. And he has in his hand a plumb line. A plumb line is an instrument used by a carpenter to check to see if the wall is straight vertical. It would be a string with a weight at the bottom of it to hold the string perfectly perpendicular. And God is standing next to the wall and it is clearly implied in the passage as he is holding the plumb line, the wall is crooked. And then to leave and to close out any ambiguity, he says in verse 8, I'm setting a plumb line among my people. My people are not upright. He says they're lacking. They're not walking as they ought to walk. They are not living as they ought to live. They are not obeying as they ought to obey. And this time there is no pleading. There is no prayer. There is only judgment. But understand what this tells us about God. God is just. He does judge those who rebel against him. But he is also gracious. We see the grace leading up to this moment. These visions are given to warn us so that we would come to repentance. So the people of God would call out to the Lord saying, have mercy upon me. And he warns. Even when the people did not repent, notice there's an intensification of the judgment, but it's not final. It moves from locust all the way to this intense drought, but that's not the final chapter. There is still the opportunity for repentance. The progression is meant to show us God's patience to lead you and I to repentance. God's patience has a purpose. We often ask, why doesn't God just destroy and end things now? And we need to be thankful that he doesn't. That our God is gracious and patient. Paul emphasizes this in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 2, he is writing and he is addressing the, the moralist. That person who feels morally superior to all those around us. You'll see this up on the screen. And as Paul is writing this, if we can get the passage up here, please. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. In other words, you're not as morally superior as you think you are. You practice the very same things. Don't look down your nose at others. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So in other words, as you are judging those you deem morally inferior to yourself and think they deserve to answer for their sins, God is saying all who are unrighteous will answer for their sins. And that includes us. Do you suppose, verse 3, O man, 
You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing. Now this is what I wanted us to see. That God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Why hasn't God brought judgment immediately? Why doesn't he stop the sinner dead in his tracks? Why does he, he, he endure even at times where his church does things that are not in line with the character of Christ? It is his patience. He is patient so that we will recognize that God is just and holy and he is not disciplining us as he ought to because he's patient. He wants us to repent. But the tragic thing is that often we don't. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. When we presume upon God's kindness and we think, well, I've got time to deal with that. I've got time to repent. He is saying we are actually making things worse for ourselves by storing up judgment because God's patience has a limit. The logical question is to ask, well, what is that limit? When does God say enough is enough? I don't know. And I don't want to find out. I don't want to reach that point where God says, that's it. You've had your chances. And when God does reach that point, understand that his actions will be just. In verses 7 through 9, when he holds the plumb line, it's to show that the wall is not vertical. It's leaning. But notice the description in verse 7 because it seems odd. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. It's drawing this image that when the wall was built, it was perfectly straight. The leaning of the wall is not the fault of the carpenter. And I think he's drawn this picture that if God's people are rebelling, it's not because of some failure in God. It's not that God failed to give them the instruction they needed. It's not as if God failed to provide what they needed. The problem is in the people. That's why they are leaning. The sin that we commit is not God's hand in, on his hands. We can't look at God and say, well, I'm just doing this because that's the way you made me. I think often we do that. Have you ever heard anybody use as an excuse for their sin the fact that they say whatever they think by saying, well, that's just the way I am. I speak my mind. I know I'm mad, but that's the way I am. That's the way God made me. God is saying, no. We have a sinful disposition for which we are responsible for. And the sad thing is, is that often we continue in our sins stubborn. Even when God works to get our attention through his word and even in the circumstances around us. We get entrenched. Well, I'm not that bad. Things will change. Things will, will get better. And often I think we adopt a, a world view that is not based upon the scripture to justify the fact we don't want to change in a Rolling Stone interview, Paul Simon offered his thoughts on what God required of us. Now, how in the world Paul Simon came to talk about that in a Rolling Stone interview, I know not. But he said this, The only thing that God requires from us is to enjoy life and love. It doesn't matter if you accomplish anything. You don't have to do anything but appreciate that you're alive and love. 
That's the whole point. Wouldn't that be great on the day of judgment if God looks at you and he says, did you enjoy life? Yay, God! No. God requires much, much more than that. The plumb line that God holds up to his people is his glory, his character, who he is. He calls us to live for his glory and to live by his glory. And according to the Bible, we all fall short of that. None of us attains living for God's glory how we ought to. But we still like to, to play that moral game. I'm, just, I'm not as bad as other people. I want you to consider this. Up on the screen, you're going to see a picture of the building in the world that is known for leaning. The Leaning Tower of Pisa. Appropriately named. It leans five degrees, which is 15 feet. That means off of perpendicular, if you were to hold a plumb line up, it is 15 feet off of where it ought to be. Now I want to ask you a question, and this is not a trick question. If that tower was just leaning 10 feet, just 10 feet, would it still be leaning? Okay. What about a foot? If it was leaning just one foot, would it still be leaning? Okay. What about six inches? Is it still leaning? So what you're telling me is this. It doesn't matter if it's leaning 15 feet or a foot or an inch. If it's not perfectly upright, it's leaning. You have just described our sin before God. We can argue, well, Lord, I'm not as bad as that person, but that's not the issue because that person is not the way we'll be compared when we stand before God. We'll be compared to God's glory. And whether you're off an inch or a foot, you're off. And the Bible says we are all off. And in the end, our sin will lead to our collapse. See, verses 8 through 9, God is very specific in what he will destroy. He says, I will never pass by them again. In other words, he's saying, that's it. Patience over. The high places and the sanctuaries, that's where their false worship occurred. That's where they tried to please all the gods, Yahweh plus the god Kamash or the god Molech. All these other gods will worship them together. And God says, I'm going to destroy them. He says, you put your faith in political power and military might and that you're a nation at peace. You trust in the house of Jeroboam for your salvation. God says, I'm going to destroy them with the sword. You see, God is saying that out of an act of his gracious love, when his judgment comes, he will destroy the idols we have trusted in so that we will see our folly and return and repent and come back to him because our idols will eventually collapse either by direct intervention from God or by the very consequence of idol worship. Matthew 7, Jesus told a story of two houses. One was built upon a rock and the other was built upon sand. He said a storm came. You can imagine the storm last night coming and descending upon these houses. Lightning, hail, rain, wind. And the house built upon the rock, he says, it stands. But the house built upon the sand falls, crumbles. Jesus is saying, take a look at what you're building your life upon. What are you seeking? For whom are you living? You see, any idol we worship will eventually collapse because it cannot sustain what we are looking for. 
If your idol is to win the applause of everyone around you, to have 800 likes on your Facebook page, and to have everyone applaud, you will never have peace because you will always live with fear of failing. That is your idol failing you. If money is your idol, your joy will rise and fall based upon the market. You will be anxious and your life unsettled. Are we getting a good percentage rate? What happens if this occurs? That is your idol betraying you. When you've had relationship after relationship, and you've lived our life that the culture says, that's the good life. But you wake up feeling empty and used. That is your idol collapsing. Do you want to know the tragic nature of our sin? When our idols collapse, you know what we try to do? Rebuild them. I'll do it better next time. I'll be smarter next time. I won't get so wrapped up in, in the next person. And so we try to rebuild the idols, having the same thing happen again and again. And each time the idol collapses, it is worse than before. God holds the plumb line up. How do you fix a crooked wall? You bring in a carpenter. And that's exactly what God did. He sent his son. You see, if these visions tell us that God is patient, but his patience has a limit and he will bring judgment, we also become aware of our own sin, that we rebel against him, but then we see the good news of the gospel. The wall can be made straight. God provided a way for that to happen. He did what you and I cannot do. He sent Jesus to atone for our sins because we fall short. I love the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. It's a story of a little boy, probably eight or nine, who is the very definition of precocious. And he carries with him a tiger. Now the hook of the strip is you never know if the tiger is real or make-believe. And he has these conversations. Calvin talks with his tiger, Hobbes. They're having a conversation. Christmas is just around the corner. And Calvin says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Hobbes says, you're worried you haven't been good. Calvin, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? And Hobbes replies, But maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And Calvin says, See, that's what worries me. That's good stuff. See, our problem is we may look and say, Well, I'm not doing those things, but are we living righteously? Are we living faithfully? Have our sins been forgiven by God? And that's where we need an intercessor. Notice, Amos interceded two times, but his intercession reached a limit. We need an intercessor who will not reach a limit. An intercessor who pleads our case before God. Who pleads that we are righteous even when we know we're not. We say, how can that happen? If that intercessor's righteousness is applied to our that's exactly what Jesus does. Amos' intercession went so far and it ended. Jesus' intercession extends onward. You see, because our problem is when we stand before a holy God, we need help. When we stand before the judge of eternity, we need a good lawyer. I was reminded of that this past week. This past week, 
uh, process that my family and I started in January finally was completed. Uh, with Emma's illness, Jody and I have been making decisions for her, for her care, uh, overseeing the vast amount of wealth that she accumulated in her freshman year of college. Um, but we were told, you know, she is over 18, and at some point we wouldn't be able to do that because of all the HIPAA laws and everything like that. So we had to apply to the court for a thing called a conservatorship, which means we still can make decisions for Emma. And this was a big deal. I didn't realize that. I mean, we had to get a lawyer. We had to have a court date. And so Thursday, me and my wife and Ellen and Samuel, we show up in court with our attorney. And we're in the courtroom. They ask me and Jody to stand and to get sworn in. I'm like, And so the lawyer starts, you know, he's doing his thing. And he, he asked, Mr. Hare, did you please tell us what the diagnosis is? And the stenographer's over there doing her thing. And then I said, tell them what they think the diagnosis is for Emma. And the poor stenographer, Samuel and Ellen, said she stopped typing and just looked up like, what? How am I supposed to spell acute necrotizing encephalitis or acute disseminated encephalomyelitis? I've got no help for you there. But as I watched the process unfold, I realized I needed somebody that understood the system. I needed, my family needed somebody that knew the language. My family needed somebody that knew what papers to file. And when I think of God, I realize I don't speak holiness. I need a lawyer who does. I don't speak righteousness like I ought to. I need an advocate who stands before God who says, that person, Mark Herod, he's put his faith in me, so he is covered by my righteousness. You and I need an intercessor who can stand before God on our behalf, pleading our case, because that intercessor has paid the price for our sins so that we can avoid the wrath of God, so we can avoid his judgment. And Jesus is that intercessor. He is the one who sets things right. We can be set right, not of our own works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And the gospel gets even better. Because not only is Jesus pleading our case at the right hand of the Father as our advocate, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, interceding for us. So he's saying, believer, you're being prayed for. God is patient. Don't continue on in sin. Understand that God still disciplines his children. You don't want to go that route. If there is something in your life that you're clinging to, refusing to give up, it will not end well. And so God in his patience is saying, let it go. Come to me. You have an intercessor pleading your case. I am patient. Don't delay. That's what we need to learn. Come to God quickly. Because to hold on to our sin and our idolatry is sheer foolishness. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me if you will.